You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts, and find us on social media. That means like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, check out our YouTube page, and tell your friends about the show. This helps us a lot, and we appreciate your support. Our guest today is Tim Ringgold. Tim Ringgold is a music therapist who uses the power of music to help people stay sober. A recovering addict himself, he definitely practices what he preaches. He's also the author of a book called Sonic Recovery, Harness the Power of Music to Stay Sober. He gave the first TEDx talk on music therapy, and earlier this year, he opened for Tony Robbins. Now, this is a pretty serious topic, but it's a really fun conversation. There's lots of laughter in here. And and normally, I don't personally get on the mic for these things, but since Tim's a musician, I figured I'd hop on, so we are a quartet this time. Well, good evening, everyone. All right. Hey, Carlos. Welcome to the Authenticity Show. Here we go. Here we go again. Yeah. Our our guest uh, for this episode is Tim Ringgold. And I think I'm saying that right. You are. Hi, guys. All right. Nice to be here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. You're looking very dapper this evening, I have to say. I appreciate that. So, Tim, why don't you tell us what you do? I use music to help people stay sober. Mm. That's what I do. And my title is Board Certified Music Therapist. Why are you bored? uh, (laughs) You know, uh, classical music. (laughs) Sorry. I'm a rocker. So, um, yeah, that's my title. Uh, My degree is in music therapy. Uh, I'm also a speaker on the topic. I gave the first TED Talk on music therapy. Um, I'm an author. I wrote a book, Sonic Recovery, Harness the Power of Music to Stay Sober. So this is kind of my world where I'm also a person in long-term recovery. So I walked into my first 12-step meeting for sex addiction in February of 2003. And uh, nobody told me in any of my 12-step meetings the role music could play to either help or hurt my recovery journey. Mm. And it did both along the way. Mm. And so now, as a music therapist, I'm aiming music at recovery and and using it as a clinical tool Mm. to help people in their recovery journey in a way that supports all the things they're trying to accomplish and anybody who's pursuing a life of health and wellness, music can support, but music can also be used to trigger cravings and relapse just as easily. So I feel like it's like my mission to really educate people on their journey because they could do great work all day in a recovery program and then go listen to their party playlist for two, three hours. And then it literally will trigger a craving in their nervous system. Mm -hmm. And then they act out and they have no idea why. And they think it's all the hard work they did during the day. And so then they equate the relapse with the hard work and then they don't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. And really the work wasn't it. They just you know, kick their own ass with their own music inadvertently. Yeah. Yeah. The brain is really powerful at creating associations, isn't it? Really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's something we make use of a lot in NLP and hypnosis and other kinds of change modalities. Yeah, totally. Um, So I I go all in on the neuro associations between people's playlists, the uh, memories, the associated feelings, and then the triggered behaviors. And it, you can walk back those things. And I experienced it as a person in recovery. One of the 
types of music I listened to a lot when I was acting out was dance music. Mm. So, yeah. you know, the right? EDM kind of stuff. Yeah, love EDM, yeah. always have. Was yeah. a raver back in the 90s mm-hmm. and still listen to EDM today. But early in recovery, I had to hit pause on EDM mm-hmm. because it was so wired into this hunting uh, ritual, this uh, ritual of wanting to get high to score that if you put it on, Within four or five beats, I, I would just feel in my veins, like it would just wow. activate this mm. state. And music really does. It activates emotional states. It activates altered states. And anybody knows this from their Certainly own experience, does. like you've been in a, an emotional state, A, and then a song came on and then instantly shifted oh, yeah. your state, mm-hmm. right? And it's that neuroassociation you had yeah. was the anchor to you know shift gears. So it's a super powerful tool. And when I went to school for it, I was like, this is great mm. because people love it. So it's going to be like this stealth transformation. Unlike Graston technique, which is not great, <laughs> no, but not effective fun at all. for a physical therapist, you yeah. know, using music, like I well, just feel like I have an unfair advantage because everybody has such a great relationship 90% of the time with it. Yeah. You're describing some really interesting things um, that I'd love to dive into, yeah. if you don't mind. Great. Um, so you said recovery, recovery from sex addiction. addiction. Yep. yep. Can we today or tonight um, talk a little bit about sex addiction too? Totally. I would love to pick your brain about it. Yep. Um, I have you know my own thoughts about it, but I'd love to to discuss this a bit. Sure. Um, what is a sex addiction? Mm. First of all, indeed. What is? I mean, I, I ask that only with the frame that it's a biologically kind of natural thing, right? Mm, yes. Um, sex is a part of life. You know, we don't yes. we don't exist without sex. Right. And it's so tied to our survival as a species. Yes. Um, so can we break that down a little? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there's uh, the world of what people think are substance use disorders, where they think that a, a chemical dependency becomes an addiction. So there's, <clears throat> so there's that world that people are used to when they think of like drug addiction or alcohol addiction. And then there's the world of behavioral disorders, which are behaviors that are done in a similar addictive way. Uh, and it, whether it's gambling or shopping, uh, or overeating or overworking or overexercising, um, or under earning, that's an interesting one out there, compulsive debting, um, and compulsive sexual behavior is one of them. And so any, the, the, there's different definitions of addiction out there. So the one that I subscribe to is any behavior that despite continued attempts to quit, the person experiences an inability to quit the behavior and the continued use of the behavior causes negative consequences in their life. So if you just took all that down, you would say any behavior with continued use that causes negative consequences. One, two, three. So you have like Mm -hmm. this criteria for it. Mm -hmm. Because the behavior, I may drink and then not drink. And there are no negative consequences in my life. Mm. And I may be able to drink or not drink, meaning I can control the use or the absence, abstinence from drinking. So that behavior doesn't meet the definition of addiction for me. But for someone who's struggling with alcohol use disorder or is alcoholic, and you know, we would we would say. They continue to drink, they try to stop, they can't, and it's wrecking their personal or their professional or both life 
wrecking their physical health, their mental health, their social relationships, spiritual health, all getting wrecked. They know it oftentimes and just feel like they're riding shotgun in the experience. And the best way I try to describe it from my own personal experience is from the scene in Fight Club, guys riding shotgun in the car and like they take the hands off the wheel and take the hands off the, the, the or the foot off the gas and the brake and the car just starts drifting. And the best way I can describe addiction from my own personal experience is it's the experience, imagine being in a car and you're shotgun and you're heading towards a wall. And there's, you were a minute ago, you were behind the wheel. And then something happened. And suddenly you have the experience of being kicked into shotgun without even your agreement. Fascinating. Hmm. And now you're riding shotgun. You're like, fuck, what just happened? Someone just literally kicked you over. Fuck off. I'm taking over. And now you're shotgun. But you can't reach over and grab the wheel or hit the brake. You just have, you have this, like, there's like this force field. You just have this inability, like you're frozen to go left. Can't jump out the door. You're just, and you're heading towards the wall and you've hit that wall before. Like you see the wall. It's not like you don't see the wall and you even fucking recognize the wall. I've hit that one before. I know what that's going to look like tomorrow. I know how that's going to feel. And yet you have the experience of not being able to do anything to prevent you from hitting that wall. And you go right into the wall and there's no joy, there's no pleasure while you're heading towards the wall. Like you're already anticipating the fun bus left years ago. And you're just fucking riding shotgun into another fucking brick wall. And you swear, this is the last time I'm ever going to hit this wall. And then you hit the wall again. And then you begin to not believe yourself or trust yourself because you've broken your word with yourself Mm. more times than you remember. You're not worthy of trust of others, so you sabotage your relationships with others. So there's shame involved. So, oh, Mm. times 10. Shame's probably the biggest weapon, you know, in in the whole journey. Yeah. Um, And then shame is a stressor on the nervous system, which triggers cravings to relieve that stress. So that's the addictive cycle is you use... And then you feel this horrible shame on the back end of using, which then triggers a craving to use again because you know what works to stop the pain. And that could be for one person that's porn, for another person that's hookers, for another person it's food, uh, another person it's screens, it's video games. And it's that thing that works in the moment and just fucks you afterwards. Just like, fuck. So there's a strong element of, of like a compulsion that you can't control yeah. that, that seizes or it seems to seize control. Yes. Um, you become dissociative during the experience. Um, you can't break out of it. So it's kind of like this hypnotic loop in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, the net result is that your life feels like it's out of control and, and then you kind of binge and purge kind of thing. Yep. In, in a sense, with the behavior. Yep. And the, the two things fundamentally is that you have this sense like that you, you don't have any control mm-hmm. and you're, you're beginning to lose the ability to like manage it. It's starting to fuck shit up around the sides and it's like getting in the way and it's getting, it's like just starting to impede on other areas of your life. And if you're in a relationship, suddenly you're not having sex with your partner anymore because you're all fucked up on porn or hookers and now reality is 
completely not interesting. Uh, Question on that. Yeah. If your addiction is to sex... Yes. ...and um, you're not seeking it in porn, you're not seeking it in hookers, but you're with your girlfriend, for example, mm. how is that problematic? So you want to take go back to the definition and look at the criteria and see if sex with your girlfriend matches the criteria. So let's say sex with your girlfriend. Okay, continued use, continuing to have sex with my girlfriend. Uh, do I want to stop? No, we're in a great relationship. I feel connected. Mm -hmm. I feel this intimacy in the act. It's super pleasurable. We both have a blast. We get off. It's fucking carnival. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Are there negative consequences to it? No, I feel connected. I feel this sense of union during the, the thing. I'm good. I'm in a really healthy No matter sexual, how much you're doing it, as long as you're getting shit done. I'm, I'm in a really healthy, sexually active relationship yeah. because it's not leading down those two qualifiers, which is one, I want to quit and I can't, and two, it's leaving some sort of physical, emotional, social, or spiritual wreckage, pain, mm. shame. Mm -hmm. If you're not feeling any shame after having sex four times in a night with your girlfriend, rinse and repeat yeah that's fucking great yep you know and so and that's what's really interesting about sex addiction because it's like you can put down the bottle but you can't put down your dick and you can't put down your libido that's for sure and so you really struggle with like well what's the difference between healthy sexuality and unhealthy sexuality and really the answer is well do you feel connected during and after or disconnected during and after hmm. and that's a real yeah. great benchmark and that's a very subjective experience and, no, I, and being like honest that. That, mm -hmm. that way of framing it because, you know, it's, it's kind of um, maybe not an uncommon thing to say, oh, I'm so addicted to you. I love you so much. Oh, my God, it feels so good. I'm so addicted. I think about you all the time. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like this desire, this erotic kind of thing. And that word is, is kind of flung around, you sure. know, addiction. Yes. And, I, and I personally have had a bit of a semantical kind of um, debate in my own mind about whether I like to even use the word addiction for things that are not... Um, medically, biologically mm. addictive, you know, mm. like, um, sure. There are patterns of dopamine. You can say that that is being produced, things like that, but it's not the same thing. You don't die if you take away sex, right? You die if you take away heroin or alcohol. So that's a uh, chemical addiction. That's an argument you know I mean? that we could, we could argue over that. Let's argue about yeah, it. Yeah. So <laughs> when you say you could die over heroin or alcohol, technically you can die if you were using enough heroin or alcohol and then you stopped cold turkey, you run the risk of dying of withdrawals during a very limited window. Right. So right. while technically your, your definition is accurate, that's thrown around with a lot of weight that doesn't consider the risk factors of other addictions that don't qualify for that one little area that you described. So, and yeah. I'll, I'll back up what I'm talking about. Sure. So, the problem with addiction is that it leads people into risky behavior and risky environments because most, a lot of addictive behavior is illegal. And so you end up in situations in places that are unsafe. Yep. By the grace of God, I'm alive today. I ended up in so many unsafe situations where my life was at risk because I was pursuing sexual ecstasy in the moment. Sure. And suddenly I have someone on top of me who's six foot four and she's strangling me. Hmm. And she has absolutely the power to end my life in that moment, and I know it. And I just realized I got myself into a situation where if she literally just decided to just, just flex her windpipe 
she could wipe me out right here. Oh, and we're in my mom's apartment right now. And she could rob my mom blind and my mom could find my dead body here. Oh, and when did I meet this person? Tonight. Oh, and what's her name? Oh, I don't even know. And the only reason I tell you that story is that shit happens with unfortunate regularity. Yeah. And so when you're an addict, you put yourself into risky situations and people die from correlated behavior far more often than withdrawals. And I had a guy in treatment who one night, six months into treatment, he goes out because he thinks it's a good idea to use one more time. And whatever was in the heroin that night, because it's never pure heroin, made his heart stop that night because somebody mixed some dirty heroin, mm. right? So his heart, it just made his heart stop. It might've had carfentanil in it, mm-hmm. which now it takes two shots of Narcan to revive people instead of one because the chemicals that are putting in heroin is so intense these days. Another one of my guys, he's in recovery, he's in treatment, but he, he likes the dark side, he likes to mess with people, and he gets into the situation where he decides he's going to go out and he uses on Saturday night. And on Sunday, while he's out pursuing, he gets robbed because you enter a very dangerous world when you're out pursuing your addiction. The next day, he goes to confront the guy who robs him. The guy who robs him then stabs him multiple times. And he's left dying. And they, I find out because it's Wednesday and I'm leading group in 10 minutes. And he was in group last week, but he went out over the weekend. And now his mom was flying in from Virginia to take him off life support. Mm. And so he's there one week, he steps out, and because he enters the world of addiction, he dies. And so many people fall into those kind of stories Mm -hmm. that I think it's really important to talk about that there's far more collateral damage in the world of addiction than just somebody dying from, you know, possible overdose or withdrawals. Absolutely noted and great points, 100%. Um, I think I'm just searching for a different term for some reason. There, there's, there's a, there's a, I don't know how to explain this. Um, I believe that strong, strongly unhealthy, like very, very powerfully unhealthy habits are lethal. Mm. Yes. Period. Compulsions yes. are, are lethal. Yes. A psychopathic homicidal maniac has an addiction, if you want to put it one way, or a strong compulsion, another way. Um, either way, unhealthy behavior uh, ruining lives, uh, he or she, you know, are, are ruining their own lives, potentially putting themselves in position to be killed as well. It's possibly addiction, possibly a, a compulsion. Either way, um, I don't even know if the if there is a point anymore. It's like you know, as you're describing this, it, it's it's make it, it's making sense that um, from the standpoint of a person going through um, something that difficult, that they can't they can't uh, help on their own. They don't know how to help on their own, that they're stuck in it. Um, Whatever that is. (laughs) And that's the key though, whatever that is, because one person's alcohol is another person's work. Yeah. And um, this is a a really interesting thing in the field of addiction studies, because there are people who are like, it must be a substance that enters the body. Right. 
but the behaviors cause the same reactions that the substances cause. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's what you get addicted to, the reaction. I think as I'm describing this, the, the reason for why it's important to me mm. is coming out. And that is that um, words are powerfully influential and often um, capable of, of changing things significantly depending on how you understand them. Yes. They persuade, they influence, and can potentially imprison or free, depending on those factors. So I always look for what is hidden inside these words, mm. you know, what yeah. is implied by them. And I think that um, one can use a word uh, differently than another person and possibly even get to the same result, you know. Uh, for me, when, when I work uh, in with, with addictions and things like that, what people call addictions, um, I work on that because for me, getting access to that part of them that decides that they have no power mm. is very important because that powerlessness that's implied in AA technology, if you want to put it yeah. that way, um, <clears throat> works a certain number of cases, right? But yeah. it also fails in a certain number of cases. And I'm interested in those cases because those are the people who end up in my office. Mm. Um, so I look for those little cracks in a way in the concept because for me, it's not a really ultimately about right or wrong, but it's about um, understanding all these possibilities and what can be flexed and what can't be, you know? And I look for those things because that often is the difference between someone getting a result, not getting a result. So for me, it's really crucial that I actually see this. Mm. And I love that we're having this conversation because I appreciate your point of view and your experience, your life experience. That's two very important things mm. <laughs> to me. And you've had success in for how long? Uh, 17 years. Okay. So you have a, a long history of having this work for you. So that's why your, your opinion is, is valuable to me. Even if we have overlapping or disagreeing uh, outer parts of our oh, sure. opinions. And, and that's you know. fine because even in the addiction treatment community, everybody is sitting at a conference over beers, <laughs> no joke, yeah, yeah. arguing <laughs> over lots of different um, points, contact points within addiction. Yeah. And there's, there isn't a lot of consensus, yeah. really, truly, in the community. And so there's debate all the time. And, and people just come to, you know, where they set up shop, you know, and they're like, yeah, we, we might not have the same, you know, thing. And like, there are people who, who believe in abstinence and then there are people who believe in harm reduction and abstinence is like cold Turkey. You're never going to do that behavior again. Mm -hmm. Harm reduction is like, let's look for a, a steady decrease in frequency, intensity, and duration. Uh -huh. And if we can find, we can taper down a behavior to a point where it's not causing all this shame and causing all this wreckage and you're managing the behavior, but it's not out of your life. Does mm -hmm. it still meet yeah. the definition anymore? Right. Well, th that actually brought me to, sorry, um, yeah. brought me to the next uh, piece of my question, which mm -hmm. is you mentioned earlier in the definition of addiction uh, that one of the aspects was attempts to stop uh, the addiction, yeah, right? Yeah. So uh, to stop the behavior of the addiction, yeah. which if you say sex addiction, then implied in that is stopping sex. Mm -hmm. So is the goal 
of a sex addict to just not have sex anymore? No, that's a really great question. And I think that sex addiction as a phrase is not an optimal phrase. Which it's is a what shortened, I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. shortened yeah. phrase for compulsive sexual behavior as right. determined by or as evidenced by blank. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, like alcoholism, like certain words, like you were saying, like words, like where do they come from? Like, right. And even in the addiction treatment world, like nobody uses the word alcoholism alcoholic. Those are not clinical terms. You know, substance use uh, disorder is a current term, but it evolves. Um, and so chemical dependency, like, like these words, they evolve over time also, which is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we can segue this back to music therapy too, because there's mm-hmm. an interesting parallel because of this very thing. Like, is this the best description Kind of like defund the police. Really, guys? Was that really the best marketing option out there? Yeah. <laughs> that was not a good marketing move. If you really want, if you want to piss off a lot of people really quickly, say yeah. defund the oh no, no, what we really mean is no, too late. Too late. Yeah. Now yeah. fuck you. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, that was like yeah. really bad marketing, you know? So <laughs> so sex addiction, like, yeah, f- for sure, because you can is, you know, like we described, is the behavior itself healthy or unhealthy? Depends on the person, depends on the time. You can have unhealthy sex with your partner the right. night after you yeah. have healthy sex with your partner. Right. And so that's it's, what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's really nuanced, you know, yeah. and it's, and that's why like you work with a sponsor and you don't try to figure this shit out in your own head because you need to be talking this shit out loud to somebody else that can hear the bullshit when it comes up and then feedback what's not, you know? And so that's one of the, one of the great parts about the 12 step community uh, imperfect as it is, yeah, is the mentor model of having somebody whose brain is dried out longer than yours mm-hmm. from whatever it is, who stands as a, a feedback post, a, a, a listening post, uh, you know, someone who allows you to become two instead of one, so we connect, right? You speak instead of think, right? So speaking and writing incredibly more organizing to thought than thinking. Yeah. Because are we really thinking or are we being thought? Yes. Because a lot of the, the, the thoughts um, are arising from uh, very old things in our consciousness. Uh, stuff like um, loyalties to who we once thought we were, loyalties to the family, loyalties to beliefs that we accepted as a child. These things, uh, if we don't break them, um, we continue them. Yeah. You know, like and, and, programming. and it's programming. Yeah. I yep. mean, it's, it's, it's at the root of why we're making decisions and, and, and we're not even questioning why we're making the decisions we're making. They say we make 30,000 decisions a day. I'm not tracking them. No. How many no. of them are conscious? Like yep. very few of them. Yep. yep. So, so yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I have found that it's, I have this analogy. Okay. So it's 2016. I'm at this one day training with a guy who's getting a second neuroscience uh, PhD and he's getting it in like human performance, like productivity. He want he works with like corporations to really like unlock Pete's states of productivity for employees. Awesome. Great gig. He's making That's a million really cool. dollars. Geez, really interesting way to go. And as someone who's really interested in neuroscience and the intersection of music, I was like, well, that's a completely different place. Flow states. Com- yeah. And so he's looking at it through this one way. I'm looking at it through another and I'm listening to him speak and he's talking this one day and he's like, all right, so I want to tell you guys about cardiac neuroscience. 
Okay. He's like, I'm getting my second neuroscience degree, but I'm not graduating. It's just so I have access to all the research before it gets published. Because by the time it gets published, it's obsolete. Wow. And I'm like, oh, okay, give me what's what's hot on the press it's right a cool now. Hack. Yeah, isn't that neat? Yeah. And he's like, because otherwise it's like it's too late. And so I was like, all right, game on. And then he can keep his student loans on deferment. That's it. <laughs> so that's the second <laughs> that's hack. The I'm other sorry. Hack. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Oops. Uh, there's another hack for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So he says, yeah, this field of cardiac neuroscience, like we finally figured out that the heart is a center of thought and the gut is a center of thought. He goes, and now we can measure it in neuroscience, in Western medicine. And he goes, and what we found is the transmissions are happening at 1 million times the speed of neurotransmissions in the brain. And he was like this little kid, like, isn't that cool? And as a fellow neuroscience, I was like, oh, that is so wow. cool. Let's, now let's just chew on that for a second mm -hmm. because Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, had right. just come out. Preconscious Processing. Yeah. And it's while it's not a scientific book, it's definitely a collection of essays and arguments as to the existence of... For sure. Lots this, of great anecdotal oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely contributes to the conversation. I love that book. And, and so he's like, yeah, so I came up with this analogy of the human body as thought. So here it goes. The gut, it's the first floor of a two-story colonial with an attic. Because I grew up in New England, so like two-story colonial with an attic. The gut, first floor. A lot of tile, a lot of hard surfaces. Everything goes in and out. Like it's like the first floor of a house is where like you come in, you go out. It's very transactional. There's a lot of movement on the first floor of the house. Things move fast. The gut. Then you have the heart. Second floor of the house, a little softer, got some carpet, got some sheets, got some bedding. It's intimate. Not everybody gets invited to the second floor, right? Like you have a house party, everyone's on the first floor. Like this is a little more, you know, intimate space, a little more private, protected, vulnerable. And then podcast listeners, I'm pointing at my head, you have the attic and it's dusty and it's not climate controlled and you can't move very fast up there and it's cluttered and there's cobwebs and there's boxes and there's like, if you move too fast, you rake your head on like a nail and you get caught. And so you just have to move really slow and it's just not well lit and it just sucks because it's too hot or it's too cold. It's just not optimal for hanging out in. And, and I left that day thinking about like life through that lens, like coming from my heart, coming from my gut, versus trying to navigate this attic of my brain. And I shared this with my sponsor and he's like, well, that's why we're on the phone. He's like, because when we're on the phone, we're on the second floor. When you're home in your room by yourself, you're in the attic and that's no place to be. And I was like, I agree, I, I agree. And so I really liked that, you know, when we connect heart to heart. And that's why at the beginning of the conversation, the love of, oh, look who it is. Ladies and gentlemen, podcast listeners, an unexpected cameo appearance from Kim Lee. She just rolled in and it's like shooting camp footage. The one and, and only. Look at this. Holy cow. Woman of the year. And I'm in, I, I do not allow things to just happen like below the radar. So I have to call all this shit out. It's not even my podcast. Sorry, guys. I'm like, <laughs> it's cool. this. Love it. Hi, Kim. It's good. It's good. Hey, Kimmy. <laughs> So 
Tim, you said the word connection. Yes. And I think it's interesting. I think we've kind of come full circle to something that here on this authenticity show, on the authenticity show, something that we've been trying to promote more, Mm. which is this idea that when people um, are addicted to something, right? And we're just, I'm just using the word loosely, addicted to something. And they view themselves as an addict. They have an identity around it. Yeah. Um, and they, they say words like clean, like I've been clean for this mm. many years or that many years. Carlos and I often talk about how that immediately implies dirty. Yes, thank so you. So you're, you're, you're thinking about this. And uh, something that we want to do is change that. So when somebody says, I've been clean, we don't want that anymore. So maybe you can help us with this. Is we want people to say, I've been connected now for mm. 17 years, for 10 years, something uh-huh. like that. Um, because... Um, there's evidence, right, that that people that have various um, uh, addictive behaviors, uh, that they do feel disconnected from life, from society, from the universe, whatever it is. And the things that help those people tend to be things that create a sense of belonging, a sense of connection. And um, so it's kind of interesting that we came back around to this this topic because we, we started this conversation really talking a lot about... Um, sex addiction. Yeah. And, um, uh, I had a great time watching being, uh, being able to eavesdrop on this part of the conversation because, uh, you know, I, I love it. Um, I spent 11 years working at an alternative opiate addiction clinic, Oh wow! which does not use a 12 step program. It's not like a traditional type of, um, type of program. Uh, it's more of a medical detox. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a great, great, uh, great place. Uh, it was, it was the Weissman method. For, for opiate addiction. Um, and so I got to meet people from all over the country, people from all over the world, you know, different cultures that all shared addictions to opiates. Mm-hmm. And some of those people did amazing and some of those people just kept coming back, mm-hmm. right? And got, got, got a chance to meet very, very, very wealthy people that are the captains of their industry with the same addiction as people that were sent there from the judge, yeah. right? And everybody in between. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, whether you're rich and famous or homeless, they all share that feeling of disconnectedness. Yeah. And then what happens is they do feel connected by um, the community of other people that share the same addictive seeking behaviors, right? Or the same, you know, the same behaviors are leading towards whatever... Um, whatever satisfaction they get from, from their, yes. their choice, right? Yes. Whatever that choice might be. Um, but then what happens is those people that do the more like traditional 12-step programs and that, which help lots and lots of people out there. And I'd, I'd say that that world is a world of pioneers. I mean, who else is doing it? Mm-hmm. They're doing it. They're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, and they're learning as they go. And they've been learning a lot you know, as they've gone for many, many years. So the issue comes up, um, what's next? How does it evolve from there? How does it continue to grow? How does it get better? And I love this idea of um, moving more towards connection, mm-hmm. right? And letting go of the identity of being an addict. Yes. And um, that's, it's just a personal problem. You know, I, I, I get that the recovery model has helped lots and lots of people. Great. I've also met lots of people that it doesn't help, yep. right? And I think for those people that it doesn't help, which is a big chunk of the population, yeah. um, I want to invite people to start letting go of the idea of, I am an addict, I am always an addict, I will always be an addict, right? Because that's an identity, yes. right? And the thing is, no, 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 you're connected now. 
As soon as the toaster is plugged into the wall, it is connected to the same circuit as all the rest of the electronics in the entire city and the entire country, right? Okay. Everything on the grid, right? Once you're connected, you're in, you're connected, you're there, you're part of it. Um, so um, uh, this kind of comes back to uh, some of the neuroscience on uh, addictive behaviors. You guys were talking about uh, like what words do we choose for this, right? In occupational therapy, uh, we often use the term um, blank seeking behavior. And we're not the only people that do this. Other, right. other professions do this. Yeah. Um, in the mental health world, um, people have sexual seeking behavior, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Drug seeking behavior. And I like that terminology. I think it's a pretty good you know, uh, way of describing it because what is it that the person is addicted to? It is the behavior that seeks the thing they want. It's not their identity, and it's not the actual thing they want. And this is backed up by neuroscience, right? Yep. So um, uh, now, this might sound crazy, okay, but it's not the sex that the person wants. It's the dopamine release they get during the seeking behavior that leads to the payoff, not the payoff. Mm. So um, the sex itself or the gambling itself, you know, winning the jackpot, you know, at the casino. Yeah, it doesn't stop them from that doesn't stop them, right. doing it. Because right. it wasn't. The next day. That was never it to begin with. Yes. It was the dopamine release they got for the behavior that led to the payoff. And they've yeah. done this research with pigeons and stuff like that. You know, like the, the pigeons hit the button, they get the oh, pellet and they sure. eat, right? They've it's, done it with porn. Right, yeah. They've oh, done exactly. the research with porn exactly. and the dopamine release doesn't oh, happen. That's okay. Hi, puppy. Oh, hello. Um, it's pretty fascinating. It happens during the viewing of the porn, not during orgasm. So you're high. And I can tell you this from personal experience. I'm high as a kite watching the porn. That's when I'm high. And I'm watching it for hours. And I'm edging, which is not ejaculating, right. so that I can stay high. Because what happens when I ejaculate? I'm no longer high. Right. Now it I ends. come down. It ends. It ends. The dopamine fix is the over. The dopamine fix is over. Yeah. yeah. And, I'm, and, yeah. and I've looked in the mirror and I have seen the same bloodshot eyes after a night on porn that I've seen after all night at a bar or smoking weed. Yeah. I'm, I'm fried, just as fried, and, and felt just as spiritually empty and disconnected. And, and that dopamine thing, that's the, it's what it's all about. And I joke with the guys when I'm working with them, I always ask them, what's your kryptonite? Huh. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's my thing. I'm like, cause it doesn't, it just doesn't discriminate. Your fucking kryptonite is your, is not the same as yours. It's not the same as yours. It's not. And yet, cause when they're in a treatment center, they're not in there for the same substance. They're in there for substance. Right. Yeah. So you'll have guys in there for opiates and then you'll have guys in there for alcohol and you'll have guys in there for meth. And, and so, but they're all in there for this same reason. Mm. Um, so I always, what's your kryptonite, you know? And they'll be like, what do you mean? I'm like, what's the thing you're fucking powerless over, dude? Like you can fucking shave and cut your hair and drive your car and do all kinds of, hold down a high stakes job. You can do all kinds of high stress, high things in your life. You've walked away from this. You've walked away from that, but there's this one thing one thing you can't fucking walk away from. And they're like, that's fucking it. I've been able to walk away from everything. And that's, mm. and, and so that, that hit is unlike any other hit for them. Mm -hmm. Why is it porn for me? I don't know. 
I mean, I have a theory. I, I have a pretty good theory as what it was and where it came from, what my origin story is, mm-hmm. why it isn't alcohol, why it isn't weed, why it isn't shrooms or you know anything else that I've tried. Mm-hmm. But what's really interesting is you know most people walk away. Most people really do walk away from recreational substance or behavioral use after about a 10-year period. Statistically speaking, the vast majority of people stop Mm -hmm. using substances after about 10 years. And there's a small percentage who can't. So then the real question is, what's driving the dopamine behavior? What? So are they trying to get high? And what you'll hear is, no, they're trying to escape so then the question is, what are they trying to escape? And the real answer is pain. Because when you go to work with people who are having addiction, 100% of them have some sort of either diagnosed or undiagnosed trauma in their history. Mm-hmm. And so what they found was they found a way to disconnect from the pain. Because we either try to avoid the pain, right, or seek the pleasure. And what I try to explain to people is, yeah, sometimes there's like this pleasure-seeking experience and it starts that way. And then, but there was something that it solved. There was a problem it solved. And one of the best quotes I ever heard is, is Gabor Mate, who's a recognized addiction, yes. like mm-hmm. the specialist thought leader. Brilliant, man. He's like, you know, addiction isn't a problem. Addiction is a solution to a problem. It's just a shitty solution. Yes. Mm. And the problem is that they have some sort of pain, whether it's physical, emotional, social, or spiritual, they've experienced some sort of pain. And that one fucking thing did it when nothing Mm -hmm. else did. Mm -hmm. That one thing took the pain away when nothing else did. And then their brain was like, fuck yeah, do it again, rinse. You know, like the amygdala is like, number one answer. You know, it was like fucking, like I always try to explain it. It's like a family feud. Mm-hmm. You know, your brain will, see, it'll try lots of different behaviors, yeah. but there's this one yeah. that works better than any. And, you know, um, uh, you, you've reminded me of uh, some research that was done on, it was pain research, mm. chronic pain research. It was done at Loma Linda, yep. my, my alma mater. Oh, no right? kidding. Cool. And uh, we've talked about this before, Carlos. Mm. Yeah. And this is what I, one of the things I love about the kind of work that uh, Carlos does, like the NLP, the, you know, hypnosis and stuff with, with, with clients. Um is uh, it ties into this this research that was done? So this this doctor there um, had a bunch of people with chronic pain watching uh, a video of a stand up comedian or you know stand up comedy, yeah. and you know they 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 sneakily got in there and did their assessments and everything, and then pretty much what they what they ended it with was okay, like while everybody was laughing while they were in the in the state of this is hilarious, yes. right? During that time, nobody could ever remember having pain, right? Yes. And um, so the question comes up, why can't we all get addicted to something wonderful Mm. like laughter, joy, humor, right? And I think we do. I think we do. Now, Carlos would say, hey, I know a few techniques to do that, right? (laughs) But I think it's just kind of a fun thing to talk about, right, is is, um, there are substitution patterns. There are substitution opportunities. Absolutely, you know, yeah. in, in these worlds of addiction or 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 whatever it is you're seeking. Yep. It would it would really be nice to be seeking laughter rather than meth. I'm just saying, you most just of the time that would yeah. be a, a nicer thing to be seeking.
So when we think about our nervous system, we kind of have th kind of three main gears that we operate in. And our default gear uh, is really a connection state. It's a state of connection. We're our, our normal chill mode, ventral vagal state is a state of connection. And then a perceived threat occurs and we change gears and to our sympathetic nervous system response. Now we go into protection mode. So we go from connection to protection. This is where we hear fight or flight response. Yeah. That's that second gear, right? Now we're in reactive mode, right? We're not relaxed, we're not connected. We're not also in creative mode because when we're relaxed, that's when we have access to creativity. Mm. When we're stressed, we're in reactivity mode. And then that third gear, you know, when you're watching the nature special and the gazelle's caught and it freezes and you're like, why isn't it screaming to death as they're having lunch on it? <laughs> That's that third gear of our nervous system where we go into shock, we go into freeze, we shut down, mm -hmm. right? And the dorsal vagal state of our nervous system. And when we're, we're designed to connect, we're in a default mode to connect and then something threatens us. And then we try to solve that. We either run or we fight, right? And that's, that was by design, you know, I'm gonna fight mm. off a tribe or I'm going to run from a tiger, right? But, it's, but in that mode, we can't create. We can only react. Yes. And so we have to be able to turn that stress response off first and foremost, relax the nervous system, get it to feel safe, and then it can connect, and then it can create. And beautiful. one of the beautiful things about music is it turns off the stress response mm -hmm. and it allows a person to feel safe. It allows a person to feel connected because music by itself won't ever backstab or talk shit or judge or uh, lecture any or scold anybody. And this is why a teen is in their bedroom listening to music and not in their living room because mm. in their living room, they get judged, scolded and lectured in their bedroom the music takes them right where they are with all the feelings they have, the way they're feeling them, what they're thinking. The music just accepts them. So they feel connected and they feel safe in their bedroom with their alone. They feel more connected alone than they do in a group of people. And that's the power hmm. of music when used correctly is it creates this safe place for the nervous system to reset, <sighs> hmm. right? And then now from this place, once my nervous system's reset, I can create right? I can, I can think differently, right? I can actually project all these things I can't do in a stress response. And I think that's one of the things that in our hyper-stressed world right now, one of the big challenges is we're chronically stressed because of the amount of decisions we were talking about that we have to make on a daily basis. There's this great coach named Dan Sullivan. Um, he talked about this, this stat, and I heard it about 10 years ago. He's like, you know, the number of decisions we make in a day to day is the number of decisions the human brain had to make in a year in the late 1890s in mm -hmm. London in the center of the Western, the most advanced city in it, at its time. The average brain made the same decisions in a year as it makes in a day. Now, I don't know where he got mm -hmm. that stat, mm -hmm. but talk about decision fatigue and overstimulation. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. That's our current world, right? Yeah. And like our nervous system was only designed to be activated occasionally into second or third gear, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And now it's stimulated daily and it just stays in second gear, right? And it's so, it's so hard for us mm. to see past the last time we did something to, to just survive the moment, you know? Yeah. It is so hard. Yeah. Uh, and, and when anyone finds themselves in recovery, when anybody makes it 
that far. For me, it's a genuine miracle. It's a miracle. There's a wonderful double entendre embedded in what you just said. Mm. When anyone finds themselves in recovery. Yes. Mm. Yes, indeed. Because that's the first place of connection. So going back to recovery, Mm. recovery is reconnection. Reconnection is recovery. We start out as connected spirits. Mm. We're connected to all. This is my little bend. I was... I am part of the all, the everything that is energy. This is just Tim spouting his little personal spiritual outlook. Mm. I am a tiny fraction of the all, the everything, which is the unified field of energy, which can't be created or destroyed. It's all, it's everything. It's everywhere. It's in every cell. It's in every atom. I'm a tiny fraction of it walking around in a meat suit rental called my body with an identity with a name, Tim, right? But I came in naked but I came in connected. A dapper meat suit. A dapper meat suit. Well, you yeah, know, we all got to work on on, yeah. on on dressing up these meat suits. Yeah. So, but I came in physically connected to my mother. I came in emotionally connected to my mother. I came in spiritually connected to all things. And then there's this process of disconnection that occurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that disconnection is deeply traumatic to the spiritual self because you get to a point where you suddenly have a thought or the thought has you am I alone? Because I'm an individual in the meat suit. Does that mean this is where the connection ends in my physical material self? Because I live in a very physical material, materialistic world. Is this it? That's a terrifying thought for a lot of people. And particularly having worked in uh, hospice, when people are staring at they, their, their future is very, very much smaller than their past. Mm-hmm. Existential questions are laid bare right there. Like there's no time for sports and weather because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we're at the end. Yeah. Here's go. Tom with the weather. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And when we get to that point, now it's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Am I alone? Definitely. You know, um, Tim, when you were describing all this, uh, you reminded me of that old band, The Meat Puppets. <laughs> you ever hear The Meat Puppets? <laughs> I yeah, remember the, the name. Yeah. Yeah. The Meat yes. Puppets, yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I think, I think uh, when somebody is on hospice, it's interesting. Uh, just before I came over here, I spoke to my neighbor. His wife just passed away today on home oh. hospice, right? Mm. Um, and so that was just right next to my home today, right? Mm. So I'm very much, you know, in yeah. this 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 yeah. frame of mind, thinking of these kinds of things. And uh, uh, I think, yeah, being being disconnected, like you said, is is a painful. It's a traumatic experience, and yet getting reconnected again is the most natural thing in the universe. Right. It is so natural to just go ahead and be connected because we normally are, right? Yes. It's like we start thinking, okay, so I'm a meat puppet, right? <laughs> but I'm also the puppeteer, right? Mm. I'm the puppet and the puppeteer, you know? And then, and who are those two anyway? Well, wait a minute. Well, who am I? If who are they, I, I, you know? <laughs> so there's the meat puppet and there's the puppeteer and then there's whatever I am that's watching these guys. So and we're all the same. I, I don't they, know. This is getting weird. weird. That's yeah. good. That's getting weird. I have a question. You're talking about these spiritual ideas, and I'm wondering, did your ideas about spirituality evolve along with your recovery? And what is the relationship between spirituality and recovery? Ooh, two great questions. So my spirituality evolved independent of recovery. Um, My recovery journey... Uh, you know, my spirituality definitely, uh, like I explored my spirituality 
and I, I did actually battle in my spirituality, in my recovery, throughout my recovery. Um, and I know for a lot of people, that's a hot topic in recovery because they can collapse spirituality and religion. Okay. Being two different practices, actually. And so when spirituality... So having just said that, I should define them uh, for the purposes of the conversation. Religion being a practice uh, towards uh, a way of either thinking, believing, uh, and then spirituality being a personal relationship uh, that's very much, in, by comparison, individual to uh, religion, which is very much, by comparison, collective. Uh, with right. a social aspect to it and spirituality being much more of an intimate, personal, non-social that's journey. A, that's a pretty good, those are good definitions. I like that. So yeah. just to kind of that tease works. them out, like, cause I've had, I've experienced religion without spirituality and I've experienced spirituality without religion. Yeah, for sure. One yeah. of the reasons I went back to religion in my early thirties <clears throat> was I was missing community in my spirituality. So uh, that, that was what led me back after leaving, right? It was that very thing. More wow. connection with your connection. That's right? exactly yeah. right. I really yeah. wanted that multiplier effect, like a great movie or a great show or a great band. You know, I didn't want to go to the concert alone. And so yeah. I was looking for that communal experience. Well, you know, there's this thing that people tend to find religion or spirituality when they hit rock bottom. Yes. My wife likes to joke that Jesus spends a lot of time hanging out in prison, you know? <laughs> like, is spirituality a necessary part of recovery? What I've noticed is for people in recovery that adopting a spiritual practice that worked for them was a game changer for their recovery journey. Right. It wasn't just like an enhancement. It was a, like a game changer, like the world changed for them when, they, when that part of their life became like a, a real viable breathing part of their, their life. Have you ever known somebody who has recovered from something, from an addiction, like really recovered without a religious or spiritual element? That's a, that's a great like, question. Do I there, know is any... Is there one counterexample? Yeah, do I have any atheist friends who are, who are recovered? Like, um, yeah, I would have to say, I don't know them personally, but I would absolutely assert that they are there because there are okay. really great recovery approaches that have nothing to do with spirituality, one of them being smart recovery, which okay. is very much based in neuroscience and it very not spiritual at all. And in fact, it was invented as like a antidote for those who were just like, fuck spirituality. I don't have any place for it, but I want tools and I want a way to work differently. So somebody create a frame that could work. And that's what I, I am definitely a many paths uh, guy. There are definitely people in the recovery world who are like, it's my way or the highway. There's, this is the one true faith <laughs> of recovery. And then there's those of us who be like, fuck true man, believer. listen, whatever, like my test for spirituality is like, or for, for believing in something is like, Hey man, if it gives you the courage to get out of bed in the morning, it inspires you to be your best self during the day. And it comforts you enough to turn your brain off at night and fall asleep. Do it again tomorrow. That's my test. Mm, Altruism. Yeah. You know, yeah. Having something beyond yourself. Yeah. Um, those are values that, that approach what people might call spirituality. Yeah. I think. I, and for me, you spirituality know. is just the connection of experience. It's the experience of being connected to something outside of myself. Right. And that, like, I remember Purpose. I had to give a, a talk one day on spirituality and music. 
and and as I was trying to define like where the Venn diagram was, it yeah. came back to connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know I was going to say, uh, in all those years that I worked with opiate addicts, um, a lot of the people that went there went there because they were not particularly religious people, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they didn't want a, a more traditional recovery model. Um, they wanted more of a medical model. But the people that were successful, kind of to come back to your question, Oliver. Um, the people that were successful, even though a lot of them did it without something that they would call spirituality, um, they didn't do it without connection. Mm. Whether they were connecting with the kindness of the staff, you know, with the therapist that worked there, with how nice the doctor was, with how helpful the the cook was, the, the chef in the kitchen, yep. you know, me, the acupuncturist, the massage, that you know, they still had connection. Love you know, that. they might not have called it any version of spirituality, but I think it it basically. Well, what is spirituality? Connection. Yeah. You know? yeah. So well, it, it stands to reason yeah. too that, you know, uh, piggybacking off what you said about identity, because I, I believe the same thing mm-hmm. that you were talking. We've had many discussions yeah. about this. So yeah. I totally see to eye to eye on that. Um, that identity can serve as a vehicle for what you perceive as a purpose. So in other words, if you discover what your purpose is, or your reason for living, or your mission, your vision, mm-hmm. all those things. If that if that's there and it's alive and present in your life, um, who do you need to be in order to achieve those things and to do those things? That's your identity. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. it could very well be that, you know, obviously like beliefs, values, identity, purpose, mission, vision, all of them are subsets of the of that word belief, mm. technically, but experientially it seems as though um you could put purpose mission and vision way at the top because Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. it's what's beyond you and it's a reason for being and it takes you very very far so it it stands to reason that if you had an a, a very um toxic set of behaviors an addiction or or whatever um that if you want to have long-term success at not just surviving and getting through it, but actually thriving and reaching a point of, of uh, happiness, that you have to transform your life in such a way that you have purpose, you have something that's beyond you. Yes. And I think most anyone would probably call that a spiritual point of view. Yep. You know? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's at least approaching the idea. Yeah, totally. And I think you don't that's, like the term. You're nailing it right there yeah. because uh, I just somebody I interviewed uh, a month ago, we talked about transforming, uh, you know, recovery, like what was the most transformational part of his recovery? And he said it was a commitment to service Ah. Mm -hmm. to, to really thinking about another human being um, rather than myself. And, uh, and, and that, and for him, that was spirituality was it was, it showed up in the, the act of serving another, putting another's, you know, needs, uh, ahead of yours in the moment, uh, which would be an altruism, you know, model. And, uh, and I loved it because I think, again, going back to the whole spirituality, religion kind of collapse, that's a tragedy for me Mm -hmm. because uh, I think it prevents a lot of people from discovering that they're very spiritual people. 
mm-hmm. because they they just have the two words too enmeshed with each other and yeah. going back to words, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like they're yeah. like, no, it must mean these both. And I'm like, exactly. no, what if it only meant this right here? And they'd be like, oh, well, I'm spiritual as fuck. Right. They'd be like, right. yes, you are. Right. You, you about- have been the whole time. They'd be yeah. like, spiritual no idea. AF. Namaste. Like they write, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> suddenly they would have exactly. this whoosh. Yeah, totally, totally. And that identity yeah. that you you spoke of, like, for me, that like that's the point of incarnation is identity for me. Because as as if I'm one and I am all of everything, uh-huh. I'm we. Mm-hmm. If I want to experience in a relative physical experience me, I need to actually break off from we in order to experience me as a singularity, as an individuation. Yeah. yeah. And therein lies the rub. That's like the, the it's like, going out on the, the spacewalk. Mm-hmm. I want to float, but I don't want to float away. Mm-hmm. So there better be a fucking tether <laughs> or I'm not fucking <laughs> yeah. going out there. I'm not, no, uh-uh, not worth right. it. Not going to try, right. right? So then it's like, okay, well, if that's the game, what are the practice? What are the tethers? How do we stay connected? Yeah. How do we stay connected when we go out on this fucking spacewalk in this meat suit? The spacewalk in the meat suit. There's the book. That's, that's, our, that's right? it. We're, we're that's writing it, it tonight. We it was are born actually here. doing it. I think it's an apt metaphor. I love Space it. Spacewalk in a meat suit. It, it's a song. Yeah. And, you know. you're, you're reminding me of something I learned about, um, I was probably 18, reading about um, psychedelics research. And there was this, uh, this set of alcoholics that were, you know, considered, um, you know, pretty severe alcoholics. And, and they, they submitted to LSD psychotherapy. Yes. And they had no clue what LSD was. They had, one of the preconditions is they can't, can't have tried it before. They can't have done any other drugs, just alcohol, um, because they really wanted to keep kind of a clean set of tests with it. And um, pretty much all of them did, I think it was... Um, a couple of weeks of pre-psychotherapy and then a really powerful psychedelic um, uh, experience. experience. So they, they took like maybe 250 micrograms or something like that, a good solid hit for someone who's never done it before. Right. And then a couple of weeks of follow-up. And I remember uh, seeing a little bit of some clips of the films and, and they were showing this fellow who had just destroyed his family life because of the addiction, as you know, how bad it can be. And while he was peaking, he, uh, one of the things that was in the room was um, images of his family, some mm. black and white photos. And there was a, a rose on the table and he all by himself, um, as he was looking at these images, uh, the psychotherapist was kind of guiding, but not interfering, just sort of like, oh, mm. um, so what's going on for you now? And you know, what do you think about this? And just kind of a few questions here and there, but for the most part, it was self-guided. Um, he was letting that person's innate sense of balance return as he began to look at these um, photos and feeling really heavy pain, like the, the darkness of what he had done and, and how, how much disconnection he had felt, speaking of connection, and, and, and how um, much sadness and grief he had felt and anger at himself for all the things that he had done. And uh, when he looked at the rose uh, and was thinking those thoughts, the rose would seem to kind of shrivel Mm. and die. And then when he um, thought about when his baby was born and all these kinds of things, he would look at the rose and the rose would seem like it was glowing and it was bright and alive. 
anyway, this experience of seeing the rose die off and kind of come back to life uh, and created this biofeedback, I think, for him. Totally. Great. And 40 years later, he still hadn't touched a drop of alcohol. He didn't go through any other program. It was just this. Yep. And that potent reset button on his brain was enough. So this uh, shamanic potential here, yes. you know, because what is shamanism? You know, when it's it's this this journey right into the underworld, yes. the darkness, into um, all the things, uh, the poisons of the world, and and sometimes being torn apart in a million bits, eaten by wolves, and all these kinds of this shamanic kind of uh, metaphors that happen. This experience. I don't even want to say metaphor. It's an experience. Yes. And sometimes it's utilizing psychoactive chemicals. Sometimes it's drumming and exhaustion. But yep. the point is you're pushing yourself to, uh, to the limits of your psyche and, and expanding beyond yep. what is there, yep. but also acknowledging what is there fully. Yes. It's a shamanic experience. So yes. again, this is kind of crossing over into the idea of that which is beyond, right? That was mm -hmm. beyond us. And as I said that, the howling the coyote, howls, coyote, coyote howled. I love the when the field interacts with what you're doing. We're talking that about yeah. that which is beyond, and yes. I love it. This well is so said, well coyote. Played, sir. Well yeah. played. Well played. We, had a, nice. we had a wild dog run through here just a few a minutes ago. A wild black too. dog. I know that was so cool. That was random. I've never seen that dog before. Shut up. It's not my dog. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that person was this, apologized to us because the dog came in and said hi to everybody. Oh my god, those the neighbors. Dog just wanted to connect. Oh, I know. Yes, it did. He's like, there's a connection party in there. It's so fascinating. I mean, these two, uh, Oliver and Satch, know that I, I've been studying something called um, uh, systemic work or family constellations. Mm -hmm. And it is all about, <laughs> about this topic in a way, dealing with trauma, dealing with transgenerational kinds of trauma. Yes. And the, the fact that we are a system exposed by systems within systems within systems and we interact with others who are also the same and therefore where do our systems touch yes you know where do they cross over where do they connect yeah. and utilizing um, your sensory awareness to pay attention to the physical signs in your environment that are actually communicating with you Now, I'm not sure if that came through the microphone or not, but there was another howl in and that was, moment. And pristine. one of the most beautiful howls I've heard in that a long was, time. That was really nice. You don't usually hear coyotes with gorgeous voices like that. You that don't. Really I mean, that was almost wolfish. And yeah. it was like, and that, what did I say so about low, being there weren't any devoured by wolves? Yeah. yeah, and meanwhile, they're coming. Right. Yes. Yeah. I love that you touched on the LSD research, though, because I want to jump in and say there's this great book called Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. I think oh, it came yeah. out last year. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's yeah. so good. Michael Pollan is awesome. Oh, he's so yeah. good. And... And uh, the research on LSD therapy in the 50s was unbelievable. Off the hook. Uh, oh, my right. gosh. Off the hook for yeah. depression and for uh, addiction. And uh, they finally reopened it. Yes. Yes. Oh. The, the coyotes wow. are very excited so about that. Uh, the they, children of the night. What sweet music oh, they make. so good. Hi, guys. Sounds like it's getting Love closer, you. too, though. They are getting closer. Yeah, yeah that did sound yeah. closer. It's, and they sounded more excited, too. They're like, yeah, they're this way. They're this way. Definitely. Speaking of meat suits, I smell four of them. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, Johns Hopkins. Um, yes. What was it? However, however many millions of dollars that they just yes. um, decided to so exciting. open up research for psychedelics again. So exciting. Mm -hmm. There were international conferences on, on it in the 50s. Tons of great literature. It was just this you know preeminent thing. Um, in the book, he talks about Bill W. from... Oh, yeah. 
having a psychedelic experience. There's a famous story. Yeah. And that it was, he brought this to AA and said, listen, this, this is the key. And they were like, that's off brand. Yep. We can't endorse He was buddies with Tim Leary. Yeah. So Probably. really fascinating, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, and that, the idea of being, so for me, the psychedelic experience is this overwhelming oneness, mm. not, and again, like overwhelming, not incremental, but an overwhelming feeling where the, the me side is completely just showered and flooded with we, and there's no escaping it. You know, the, the identity can't put up the character armor that it rips the armor off and just, you know, goes, come here, give us a <laughs> hug. You come on. No, put that armor down. It's okay. It's safe. It's going to be okay. And you're like, no. And finally you're just like, oh, we, holy shit. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. And then you just come back and you're just like, hi. And nothing yeah. looks the same and yeah. nothing seems the same because you got reconnected. Yeah. And I, I Torn love, apart and re-assimilated. That's mm-hmm. it. That's it. So I love the research that's happening with Ibogaine, with ayahuasca. I'm all about all of the plant-based medicines being used. Yes. I'm just like, please more. And just the, the yeah, let please more of all of that. Because I think that when, and, oh, so this is fascinating. One of the techniques in music therapy is called uh, guided imagery to music. Mm. And it's creating an altered state of consciousness in the brain and then listening to a set of prescribed music by the therapist. And the therapist is the guide and the patient is the traveler and they go on a trip. Wonderful. And in the 70s, the Helen Bonney, the, the like pioneer of it, would use LSD. But she, her problem with it was it would just last too long. <laughs> Because yeah. it's just so long-acting. Long, it was yeah, just long too long-acting. The and musicians so, were exhausted by the you know what end I mean? of the it 10 was like to 12 hours. Having, like you yeah. want to have like a 90-minute to 120-minute you know, session, and then four hours later, they're still going, and you're just like, this isn't it. Should have so, psilocybin or psilocybin. There you go. It's much shorter acting. Yes, It's shorter-lived. So um, she found out that there's a very specific breathing technique mm. that they used that achieved the same altered state of consciousness and so the Bonnie technique or the Bonnie method of guided imagery to music, BG, BMGIM, that's terrible. Um, really, Bonnie method of guided imagery to music uses a very specific breathing technique and you trip. No joke, because I did it and I was high as fuck and I was tripping balls on breath. And it was a real wake up call because it was like, it was this moment where I recognized that breath and music can induce just as powerful of an altered state of consciousness as anything I'd ever taken recreationally up wow. until that point. And I was at that point a, like a music therapy student who was like pretty straight laced at that point. It wasn't like I was anything was lingering in the system. I was sure. like knee deep in my scholastic work when I had this experience. And I can still tell you details of my trip to this day. And wow. it was probably 2006 four or five when it happened. Mm. Oh, wow. wow. Really interesting. It you know? is. Wow. And so like, I'm really interested in that because one of the things I'm always preaching to my patients and to people when I'm doing keynotes or I'm doing workshops is like, when I learned that breath and music can reset the nervous system and can lead to altered states of consciousness, mm. I that yeah. was so empowering. That's juicy. Because anywhere I go, here's the rub, anywhere I go, I have access to both. Because in the present moment, I do have some control over my breath. Mm-hmm. I can choose my inhalation, exhalation rate. Like I have control over that in the present moment. If I'm present and I'm present to my breath, I can control my breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My body is an instrument. 
Mm-hmm. I do not need an external anything mm-hmm. to make music. And as far as the brain's concerned, I don't even need to sing for my brain to respond as if I'm singing. So if I audiate, which just means think about this melody, mm-hmm. the same neuro receptors magic happens mm-hmm. as if I actually sing. And so I can audiate and wow. I can induce the same response. So mm-hmm. I, I have, they're both in me. I'm wired. I come pre-wired mm-hmm. with breath and music, which to me is like, I come pre-wired to completely regulate this nervous system that runs the show and these, you know, like I would love to, God, we could go for eight hours in this conversation because I would love to dig into the talking about conscious, subconscious and how it overlaps with the nervous system, the three gears and Mm -hmm. what gears are activated and what, because, you know, we talk about like when there's a parasympathetic or a a sympathetic response, you know, the prefrontal cortex switches offline, the amygdala switches online. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, so then how does that, like, how does that affect, you know, your subconscious? Like, where is that taking place in the brain systems Mm -hmm. in regards to the three states of our nervous system? Because in order to connect, the first thing we need is to feel safe. Yes. Right. Right. And so, and I didn't mean to point at you like, oh, no, I was circling it. back to this yeah, thought yeah, about yeah. the guys at your treatment uh-huh. facility. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was thinking back like, well, what, what's the precursor to connection? It's safety. Yeah. Neuroception of safety is the bottom line. You have to yeah. have that. You have Otherwise, to have it. You can't. Maslow's hierarchy. I mean, yep. there it is at the base. Right? Survive, be alive, be okay. And it's, and, yeah. and for me, I've adopted kind of like a four uh, point uh, approach to my uh, teaching for recovery, which is that we're a physical uh, mental, social, and spiritual self, mm. and that we can experience pain in all four categories. Uh-huh. Mm. So we can trigger the nervous system in all four areas, right? So you can have physical pain, you can have a traumatic pain or chronic pain, right? Mm. Physical pain. You can have emotional pain, which mm. could be grief, right? It could be the feeling of being alone. Like you, there's all kinds of, you know, you put depression in there, you put anxiety states. Those are like emotional pain. Um, social pain can be social anxiety. It can be bullying. Spiritual pain can be the trauma of growing up in a hyper-religious family telling you you're going to go to hell, which is what my story was, mm-hmm. right? So you can experience it in all these four categories. So you really need to feel safe physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually. And once you have that precursor of that four part of safety, because I think it's more than just psychological or physical. Like you really need to feel safe as a whole person. Now you've given your nervous system permission yeah. mm. to, to default back to what it's designed to do, which is just mm. open up and That's connect. Great. Right. Yeah. And so, and since we can use music to do that and we can use breath to do that anywhere I go, I'm designed to be able to re-regulate Anywhere I go, God, I love this. Whether <laughs> so I do or I don't yeah. is the game itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. That's yeah. the court. The knowledge of how the game works isn't the game. It's executing the game. I know to hit a forehand right down the line. Right, I know to do it because I know that's. The, but whether I can actually execute that move, I get satisfaction not from beating that guy. I get satisfaction that I executed the move in the moment that was indicated. And in the game of life, for me, these are the games, like the medium, the game itself is life. And and the game is to re-regulate so that I can reconnect.
just ask a couple just down to earth practical questions. Yes. I mean, we were just soaring out into the universe with some fun. of the stuff, right? Yeah. I love it. Um, music therapy. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the practice settings that that music therapists work in? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, a lot of us work in educational settings uh, with IEPs, working with kids with okay. uh, intellectual or developmental disabilities, mm-hmm. really targeting music as a tool to help increase whatever their goals and their IEP are. So if a to- uh, attention span and appropriate social behavior are targets, we can actually uh, strengthen those uh, life skills through musical interaction. Hmm. So like through the school system? Yeah, through the school okay. system. Do music therapists get, uh, or do they end up getting contracted through or like yes. they get hired or just kind yeah, of brought in as Yeah, sometimes depends on the school district. They might okay. uh, have a, a position in the school district where you nice. work for the school district. Like regional or, center? Yeah, you might be in, involved in a regional center as well mm-hmm. or you might be in private practice and your agency contracts with the school district and provides the services. Yeah. So my company provides music therapy to a school for kids with special, special needs uh, comes in certain number of hours per month okay. to do music therapy in the classroom with the with the students. Um, others do it one on one. You know that can depend on the on the setting, on the budget, on the needs. Mm. Um, and we work across the lifespan. And so we are. The joke is we work womb to tomb. <laughs> So, womb to tomb. Womb I love to tomb. it. I love so it. fascinating research uh-huh. on music therapy with uh, premature neonates. Wow. So we do work in the neonatal intensive care unit. Wow. Fascinating Whoa. research in there. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then early childhood, working with kids. Um, and then uh, kids with autism. Again, similar to kids who fall under the ID and D category, the intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, really great research on on music therapy and kids with autism, and then uh, music therapy for the treatment of neurological disorders, whether it's a stroke, or um, it's a traumatic brain injury, uh, or it's um, dementia, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. I've but, seen some of that. Some fascinating. Yeah, so it's a really great research, particularly uh, for yeah. patients with uh, brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gabby Giffords is is a kind of a, a, a celebrity example. So she was taught to speak again through singing. Mm-hmm. So because singing is a proto-language and, and music's a proto-language, it's a pre-language. So developmentally and evolutionarily, we sing before we speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all sense. kids sing first before they have language mm-hmm. and then they put words to music. Make sense in the timeline? Yeah, yep, totally. Yep. Evolutionarily, that's the same belief is that we sang as a species before we spoke. Okay. And so we used it as a, as a proto pre-language uh, form, first form of communication was, was musical. Well, I don't know a single person that forgets their ABCs because of the song. Ding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, we, can, we can use I still music. remember jingles from the 1980s. Me too. Yeah. Pretty fascinating, right? Yeah, How yeah. that works. Yeah, yeah and yeah. we—I love doing that with the way that our brain just encodes melody. Is yeah. it's just it's as easy. if there's a gear waiting for, like a file, just waiting to open it up, right? Yeah. So dun, the brain really dun, dun, likes dun. music, and the field of neurological music therapy just really has done a great job of really exploring the intersection of how we can use music to recruit the brain and the body to do things that it's struggling to do in a non-musical context. So we'll use music as the kind of the, the highway. So we'll, we'll kind of hack the system with music. Mm-hmm. So uh, stroke patients, they'll teach them to sing their needs to their nurses. Yeah. Oh, and then they'll yeah. generalize the singing back to speech. And that's how they'll... they'll and so mm-hmm. different neural networks will be used in the process of singing than there are in speech because speech is very localized, but singing is global. So mm-hmm. cool. Music's very fascinating in that respect. So very, it, it recruits yeah. all the redundant pathways, mm-hmm. so it kind of bypasses where the injury is. Yeah, recruits other areas uh, to do the work. It's and like it's like it's like a 
it's like a, a digital bypass surgery. Kind of, sorta. Yeah, yeah. I love it. it's and it's not and it it's, it's like muscle not a, recruitment. It is. It's yeah. muscle. It's and it's neural <laughs> recruitment, and it's yeah. very slow. It's very iterative. It, it's not like. Uh, 15 mm-hmm. sessions, uh, and you know, you're speaking again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really hard to standardize. Um, okay, so yeah, yeah. one of the great, more philosophical, um, discussions in music therapy is that music being organized sound, that might be the most general definition I've ever heard. Cause then you start like cutting parts of that have been defined as music as no, oh, sorry. So it's just organized some, whoever, whoever's the author, Define makes the rules. I organized this sound in this way, including four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, which is a well-known piece of music by a guy named John Cage. And he organized the silence and it's, it's performed publicly. It's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And it's the ambient sound of the room. That's the music because mm. that's the way he de- determined it. So I just mm. think that's fascinating. But when we get down to like, how are we using it on a daily basis with stroke patients and mm. with TBI patients, it's like more like rhythm. Um, yeah. It's more the perception of rhythm in the brain that we're stimulating in those cases. More of it, like, like a timing aspect. It's to a it. timing yeah. aspect. Yeah. yeah. So it primes like the motor cortex when we're going to walk. So patients who have had a stroke and are doing mm-hmm. gait training with their, PT, their physical therapist yeah. will regain gait in about 55% of the time that it takes a patient without music therapy added mm. to the gait training. It's a bit of a loud one. Yeah. I know you guys have this like internal mind, like, oh, it's a yeah. loud one. Yeah. yeah. I hear right. a loud one coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You guys just give each other the look at this yeah, point. Like exactly. we, we, we try to go on. <laughs> it's happening. Right. That, that's a, that's yeah. a, what, what are the big giant um, FedEx planes? Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. They're huge, right? It's a, oh, oh that was God. a FedEx. Like, yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen and used what you're talking about in occupational therapy practice. Nice. You know, like, like, for example, one of the things you learn when you work in geriatrics is that you have a lot of, a lot of old fellas in there that were in the military. Yes. And they can't walk very well but they sure can march. Ah. And if you remember that, because they it was trained in them, march, yes. march, march. And if you yes. give them, all right, here we go. Left, left, left. And, and, and they can they get into a rhythm and they can walk. It's unbelievable how well that wow. works. Yeah, wow. um, that's really cool. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, so something you don't know, Tim, my, my wife uh, has multiple sclerosis. Okay. And so she's pretty cognitively disabled at this point. And she's having a lot of difficulty speaking. Hmm. Right. It could be, I mean, she can speak. It's just, you could tell there's a lot of, um, uh, like when she's trying to speak or thinking about speaking, you can tell she just doesn't have any motor planning. You know, there's just no motor planning there. And one of the things that I can do to get her to speak is just get her to say, ah, okay. Okay. Hey darling, uh, are you, are you comfortable? And I don't get anything. I don't get anything. Sweetheart, sweetheart, say, say, ah, ah, say, ah, and she'll go, ah. Okay, and then I try to use, uh, like in Hinduism, the universal om. Mm-hmm. Okay, say om. She'll go, om. And I'll say, are you comfortable? She'll go, uh-huh. So then she can she can speak to me if I get her doing an om you or primed, an ah. Yeah, yeah, you've primed, primed that it. system. Yeah, and then she can music. ride that wave yes. into saying something else. And it's the 
the only way I can get her to to get her needs known. Mm. You know what I mean? Is 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 to do. is to to do that. So it's really um, great. yeah, so it's it's kind of fascinating, and so that's what the kind of stuff you do all the time for all different kinds of things in yes. music therapy. Right? Yeah, so, so you you start needs. to pre- you you start to look at who the patient population you want to serve. You know what their challenges are. You know what music can do, and you start to think about how you can hack in with music as this like stealth tool uh, to help them with what they're already trying to do. So in the recovery world, as we go back to sober, the acronym that I created. Um, when, so we do a lot of drumming in groups, we call it clinical improvisation. We bring rhythm, rhythmic instruments. We show the patients or the clients or the residents how they're played. And then, uh, I'll say, all right, guys, I'm going to create a steady beat on the bass drum here. And then your job is to explore the sounds of the instruments and then just connect the sounds to the beat. Explore and connect. Those are your instructions. Love it. All right. And we're going to do like four rounds. So you're going to play like four different instruments along the way. Okay? All right, cool. So there we go. And we go through the process. And at the end of it, like, okay, now what'd you connect with the most? And which number was it? Was it the first thing you played, second, third, fourth? I connected with the buffalo drum. It was the third thing. I connected with the shakers. It was the first thing. I connected with the something. It was the fourth thing. Great. That is life. That's a metaphor. Explore and connect. Mm-hmm. No one but you will know what regu- regulates you. And my sponsor's definition of sobriety is that it's a, a, it's a mutually explored definition of what's good and bad for you. Hmm. That's great. Could you say that one more time? Yeah. yeah. Sobriety is a mutually explored definition of what's good and bad for you. Hmm. I like that. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad you repeated there's, that. Yeah, it really this, sunk in the second time. Yeah, there's something there. If people um, uh, want to be want to continue to be addicted to awesomeness, what is your website and how can they learn more about this and see oh, you speak? That was very kind. <laughs> that well, was clever. Uh, yeah, you can just, timringold.com is where I'm at. Yeah, first name, last name. And then... Um, when you go there, I'll give you a gift. So I'm all about resetting the nervous system with music. So there's uh, this thing I call the relaxation vacation. Because you're not going to take any other kind of vacation anytime soon. So it's, it's a guided experience where I'm playing slow tempo classical guitar so your nervous system can entrain and slow down nice. and to the music while I take you out of the present moment back to a safe memory you choose because I don't know what's in your traumatic history or not. I'm not going to suggest you go to a beach. You might have had a friend dr- drown in a rip current and you get triggered, right? So mm-hmm. I let you choose the safe memory of your choice. I walk you back through it till you're experiencing it in the present moment and bring you back feeling connected, feeling safe, and taking those feelings from that moment and applying them into the stress that you're facing in the present. So if you want to take a relaxation vacation, it's free. Just go to my website. You'll see my bald head. And then you'll say, want to take a relaxation vacation? And you'll say, why, yes, Tim, I'd love to. And just follow the instructions. That's a great gift. That's a really loving gift. I appreciate that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to check it out. It's been, it it's been an honor because I use music to help and heal, not to entertain. And so the feedback I get from the relaxation vacation, when I get emails from people like, I'm struggling with sleeping, sleeping's a huge issue for me. I've been able to sleep now because of your 
relaxation vacation. My kid uses it to fall asleep every night. Uh, like I just get these wonderful, like pe- how people use it to help them in their journey, recover their rhythm is yeah. like the most That's great. gratifying experience as a musician. You might help me fall asleep tonight. We'll there see. you go. Yeah. yeah. If I, and that's like not exactly most entertainers, uh, you know, they're not out to put their audience to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like for me, job done. Success. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Another snoring audience member. My work's done here. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Tim Ringgold. My name is Oliver Altine. I produce the show. I also wrote our theme music, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time is a little tune I whipped up in my home studio. I called it Robot House. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show if you haven't already done so wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. Check out our YouTube page. And you can find our website at AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.